You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. What a joy to be together. And if you are a kindergartner or first grader, you can go to Bible study with the Whaley family over there standing by the doors. And if you are not a kindergartner or first grader, let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So this is your first time with us here this morning. We're glad you're here. We've been walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Acts. And today we find ourselves in chapter So we're going to read most of chapter 4 this morning. I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 31. So Acts chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 31. So as you turn there in your Bibles, let me read this text for us. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who have had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anus, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said, had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, 
they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this morning, we pray for your spirit to come and to fill us, Lord, that we might proclaim Christ boldly in our city, in our county, in our country, and in our world. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would not be timid or fearful, but Lord, we ask for your spirit to come and fill us in light of the teaching of your word, Lord, that you might help us to be faithful messengers, faithful witnesses of the resurrected Christ, even in the face of incredible opposition, even in the face of incredible worldly powers and authorities, Lord, that we might not bow down, but Lord, that we would speak firmly, boldly, lovingly, clearly that Jesus is Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 states that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. Throughout Christian history, you could find your share of lions, of numerous men and, and women who have boldly preached Christ, even in the face of powers at B that might threaten their life. So let me just share one of those stories, one such examples, a guy by the name of Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer. You might not have ever heard of this guy before. Who is Hugh Latimer? Well, Hugh Latimer was an Englishman who was a devoted Catholic. He grew up and he was so devoted to Catholicism, he decided he was going to become a priest in England. And so as he became a priest, he began to garner a bit of a reputation for his oratory skills, for his ability to, to preach. But as Hugh Latimer began to hear about what was happening in the continent of Europe, particularly in Germany and, and about the Reformation, he began to have a change of heart. He began to hear about this idea of sola scriptura, that it is by God's word alone that is the authority for the church. And he became convinced of the truthfulness of the Reformation, of the importance of God's word, the importance of the gospel of justification by faith. And so Hugh Latimer was converted out of Catholicism, and he marks this as the turning point of his conversion in the year 1525. So Hugh Latimer, former Catholic, now Protestant preacher, became this bold preacher on the early years of the Reformation in England. In fact, he even confronted King Henry VIII in his sin. Now, if you remember a little bit from your history textbooks, right? King Henry VIII separated England from the Catholic Church over his desire to get a divorce. Not allowed in Catholicism. He wanted it to happen. So King Henry VIII separated from the Catholic Church, not out of theological convictions per se, but just because he wanted to get a divorce, and the Pope said no. So he's like, all right, well, we'll just go do our own thing, right? So, so King Henry VIII starts the, the Church of England, and King Henry VIII, over the course of his life, would have six different wives over the course of his life. And so the story goes that Hugh Latimer once gave the king, King Henry VIII, a, a gift for New Year's Day. And the gift was a Bible. And Hugh Latimer in that Bible had folded down two different pages in that Bible and marked them for King Henry VIII. The first was Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then the second page that he folded down was a quote from John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Happy New Year, love, Hugh Latimer, right? So one time Hugh Hugh Latimer was invited by King Henry VIII to preach to his court. Again, he had such a a wonderful reputation as a preacher. And so Hugh Latimer comes and and he is invited to preach before the king's court. All the aristocracy of England, all the power brokers are there in that room. And he preached a bold message on the Lord's Day to all there to repent of their sin in strong, direct, and plain language including another reference from John the Baptist that he spoke to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have her. Matthew chapter 14, verse 4. The king, as you might imagine, was uh, pretty perturbed and offended by this sermon, and he reprimanded Latimer. He said, Latimer, you not realize who you're talking to. Why don't you go back, prepare another sermon, come back next Sunday, and let's see if you can preach a more suitable message. And so the next Sunday, Latimer came back to the king's court. And as he stands up to preach, he announces the exact same sermon text as he preached last week. The exact same one. And before he began, he had a moment of public soliloquy and prayer. And this is what he said to himself for all who could hear in the king's court. Speaking to himself, he said, Hugh Latimer, do you not know before whom you are this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. And then consider well, Hugh, do you not know from whence you come, upon whose message you are sent, by the great and mighty God, who is all present and who beholds all thy ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. Hugh Latimer then preached the exact same sermon with even more boldness and more intensity. Now, afterward, Latimer would actually live to see another day. I think the king was even amused by his his consistency there and his, his preaching. But eventually, Latimer would be burned at the stake under the reign of Henry's daughter, Mary, of Bloody Mary Infamy. So such stories of of Christian courage often make our own lives seem pretty cowardly by comparison, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at Christian history, if you study it well, you will find countless brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the ages who are willing to die for the gospel. And of course, one of the questions I think that I ask when I read stories about Hugh Latimer and so many others. And the question you might be asking as well is, well, why, why aren't we as bold? Why aren't we as bold? Do we not believe as strongly as they did? Are we too comfortable? Are we too fearful of the opinions of others? Because you see, we have no risk of facing the sort of persecution even other Christians around the world face today in other countries. But yet here in America, where there is freedom to to preach boldly, we default to silence. Why is that? You see, as we continue to study the book of Acts, we find that Peter's healing of this lame, crippled man and his evangelistic preaching at Solomon's portico that we looked at last week, all of this will lead to his arrest and to an interrogation by the Jewish high council. But yet at that scene, before these powerful people, Peter will preach Christ boldly, and he will announce and herald the hope of the resurrection in the face of the powers and authorities who who had the right to take away his life if they chose. And with boldness, Peter and John, they preached Christ, even in the face of possible martyrdom. So I pray that God would make us so bold as we set our minds upon this word today, that what we lack in boldness that the Spirit of God might give to us. So here's the the sermon summary. It's a simple one. Pray for Spirit-empowered boldness as you share Christ. Pray for Spirit-empowered boldness as you share Christ. See, as we look at Acts chapter 4, we're going to see that boldness is kind of a recurring theme in these set of verses. And we will see first and foremost that we must preach with boldness. Secondly, we'll see that we must persist in boldness. And then thirdly, we will see that we must ultimately pray for boldness. Let's talk about the first 
one of these. Preach with boldness. So again, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember we talked about how Peter healed this crippled beggar. And as this beggar is, beggar is dancing in the courts of the temple, uh, a public scene erupts. People are wondering what is going on. We know this guy. We've seen him day by day by the gates at the beautiful gate. Now he's, he's dancing. He's jumping. He's praising God. And so the crowd just kind of gathers around Peter and John, whom this newly dancing beggar is jumping around. And they corner him at Solomon's portico, and they force Peter and John explain what happened. And so Peter preaches the gospel, right? He explains that Christ Jesus, he's the, the one who is the source and the power for this miracle. This Jesus who was chosen by God, this Jesus who is the holy and righteous one, this Jesus who is the author of life. And therefore the crowd, you must repent of your sin. You must repent of your rejection of Jesus and embrace him as the promised son of Abraham who would bring worldwide blessings starting first and foremost with the Jews, with Israel. And as you might've guessed, this sort of public commotion displeased the Jewish authorities who were overseeing the temple. And so here's one of the first things we learn is that bold preaching brings critics. Bold preaching brings critics. So we see this, this posse of, of Jewish leaders begin to approach Peter. They demand, Peter, you've got to stop, and we're going to make you stop. We're not asking. We're going to arrest you. And so the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees made up this group that sees Peter and John, and Luke tells us about what bothered them most about what they were saying. They were annoyed that Peter and, and John, they were teaching the people about Jesus, particularly the claim that he is resurrected from the dead. That's what really perturbed them. So who were these Sadducees? All right, we're kind of familiar with the Pharisees. How are they different than the Pharisees? Well, the Sadducees were the theological liberals of the Jewish people. All right, these were while the Pharisees were, were conservative, the Sadducees were not. The Sadducees did not believe in a coming resurrection. And they had largely established themselves as sort of the, the religious elite, the elite aristocracy who aligned themselves closely with the Roman Empire in order that they might maintain power and get advantage for their own political and economic interests. So these Sadducees had the clout. They had the power. They had the positional authority. They were the religious and political elite in Jerusalem. So what annoyed the Sadducees was, was that Peter and John were teaching about the resurrection. Now, most of the Jews, including the Pharisees, believed in a coming resurrection. But the Sadducees didn't want this sort of teaching being publicly taught at the temple let alone connected with some guy named Jesus who they just had offed a couple months ago, right? That's not what they want being talked about. So when you start preaching Christ crucified, when you start preaching Christ resurrected, that he lives, you are going to earn some critics along the way. If you say anything worthwhile nowadays, you will earn the ire of those who disagree with you. However, there is nothing more polarizing Nothing more controversial than preaching about the resurrected Christ. And there will be those who will want to silence you, to seize you, to shut you up. You see, countless Christians throughout the last two millennia have found themselves in chains for preaching Christ resurrected, even unto this day. So we, here even in America, right, we, we ought not to be surprised there will be critics and opposition when we start preaching the gospel. As Jesus said, if they have called the, the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, if they call Jesus Satan, what do they think they're going to do to you, right? We shouldn't be surprised by this criticism. We could, shouldn't be surprised by this conflict. They will certainly attack us as followers of Jesus. So opposition to the gospel ought not to surprise us, as bold preaching will bring out many critics, but we also see that bold preaching brings growth. Bold preaching brings growth. Luke continues this sort of running tally in the book of Acts that we've seen so far of the numerical growth of the church. 
Tells us when they first started before Pentecost, they're in the upper room. There's 120 of them waiting for the Spirit. After Pentecost, we're told that the number reaches 3,000 souls. As the Spirit-filled community of the church lived and as they ministered together, the Lord added to their number day by day. Luke tells us, and here by by chapter 4, we're told that in response to this this sermon from Peter at Solomon's portico, the the number of just the men came to around 5,000 who had heard and believed the gospel. Clearly, something was afoot. Clearly, there was a movement beginning, going from 120 to 3,000, now to just 5,000 men, not including others, women. So just as the bold preaching of the gospel brings critics, we have to also remember the bold preaching of the gospel brings growth. Yes, there will be people who reject the message about Jesus, and they'll often reject it with vicious hostility. But yet, there will be others who are cut to the heart. There will be others who repent of their sins. There will be others who believe upon the Jesus to whom we speak and we preach. And as we share the gospel with people, we should expect both rejection and repentance. Both will be happening as we do. Some will reject, others will repent. And praise the Lord for that. Even as as Peter and John are arrested at Solomon's portico, even though they're going to be arrested for preaching the gospel, we see that the Spirit is working to save. The kingdom of God is growing. It's expanding even still. So bold preaching brings growth, but we also see that bold preaching brings questions. It brings questions. So Peter and John spend a night in custody And they're brought before the Jewish high council called the Sanhedrin. Maybe you've heard that term before. The Sanhedrin, what is it? It's this group of of all the major power players in the Jewish faith, including Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, Ananias, who was the former high priest, though he still retained the title. So it's kind of like presidents, right? Once you're a president, you always get called president. Same thing with Ananias here, right? He's former high priest, but, but again, still referred to as high priest. You have John and Alexander. All of these were, were members of the high priest's family. And so in many ways, this, this was the one, this is, this is the, the, the who's who, so to speak, of the, the Jewish political and religious power. All on one council, one team called the Sanhedrin. And on the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees had majority over the Pharisees. The Sadducees had control. So they were a group of leaders And these were, again, bright folk. These were the the highly educated, the Ivy League graduates, right? This is the cream of the crop of Jewish society. And they had attempted all sorts of snares with Jesus. Remember when they, particularly that that week of leading up to his his death on the cross, they try to plot all these sort of verbal gains and ploys in order to try to trick Jesus and sort of into a trap them. But, But we see Jesus outsmarts them time and time again answering with wisdom and insight, and he kind of foibles their plans. So we see that these religious leaders are attempting the same sort of strategy as they open up the interrogation with Peter and John. And they ask just one question. It's a simple question, but it is a deceptive question. By what power or by what name do you do this? By what power, by what name do you do this? So the council knew that if they attributed... This miracle of this crippled guy, they attributed that miracle to anyone other than Yahweh, the God of Israel, then they had the right to sentence them to death. So the question was an attempt to intimidate and to bully Peter and John into backing down from their claims about Jesus. Imagine the scene. You've got these honorary Jewish council in their grandstanding robes and all of their prestige and preeminence, standing above and looking down on these two Galilean nobodies and this now walking beggar who's also there, using every ounce of their power and intimidation in order to silence and frighten Peter and John from testifying about Jesus. After all, this is the same council that sentenced Jesus to death. Would they not do the same for Peter and John? So bold preaching will bring questions. And those questions might be the sort of inquisitive kind, like tell me more, 
But sometimes those questions are the malicious kind, the sort of questions that aim to intimidate you and bully you and force you to silence. But of course, in light of these questions, bold preaching also brings opportunity. Bold preaching also brings opportunity. Will these apostles, will they cower in fear before them? Or will they continue, Peter and John, to preach the gospel boldly, even in the face of these mighty men who stand before them on the council? So as Peter prepares to respond to the council's questions, we see that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Not implying, right, that Peter didn't have the Holy Spirit prior, but that the Holy Spirit filled Peter with with fresh power and boldness for what he was about to say. And Peter then, before this Sanhedrin, before this council, began to testify about Christ. And amazingly, Peter does not back down. If anything, he buckles up. He buckles down and he begins to insist that this Jesus that they've been preaching, this Jesus of Nazareth, this is the one who did the miracle. He did not shy away in the slightest by boldly declaring that Jesus is the Christ. Look at what he says in verse 10 in chapter 4. He said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which have become the cornerstone. What amazing boldness this is. It's absolutely astonishing. Because not only does Peter insist that Jesus is the one who did this miracle, this healing of this crippled man, but then he actually goes on to accuse the Sanhedrin of crucifying and rejecting Jesus just as Psalm 118 prophesied and said that they would do. The builders of the house, the council, the Sanhedrin, they rejected the stone that God would make, the cornerstone. What boldness of Peter. And then Peter insists not only in the resurrection of Jesus, which they didn't like, that idea, right? Not only does he insist that Jesus rose from the grave, but that they affirm, he affirms Jesus' identity as the promised Messiah. And then he goes on to say that there is no salvation apart from the name of Jesus. Christ alone, Peter says. Jesus of Nazareth alone. He's the only way. Look at what he says in verse 12. And there is no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, this this bold gospel that Peter preached to the council of the Sanhedrin, this is the same gospel that we preach today. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Christ who died in fulfillment of God's word and who rose again triumphantly over the grave. And there is no salvation apart from Jesus. And so if you are not a Christian here today, we are so glad that you are here. You are always welcome, but but we want to to boldly encourage you and pray and call you to repentance. We pray that, that Peter's message that we're hearing here, that it would cut to your heart, that this bold message of the gospel might pierce your soul. Because yes, you, like all of us in this room, we are sinners. We were at one time enemies with God. But God has sent his son to come. You see, you may this morning have rejected Jesus all of your life. Today, repent of your rejection of him. Confess him as Lord and as God, for Christ alone is the only way. Not a way, he's the only way to salvation. As Peter says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I I plead with you to turn from your sin, to call out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. And as you submit to Christ, you will receive the forgiveness and the grace that comes through the cleansing of his blood as he blots out all of your transgressions and as he gifts you with his own righteousness. This is the gospel that Peter preached. This is the gospel I preach to you this day. Repent 
and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, the critics and the questions all provided Peter with an opportunity to preach Christ boldly. And through the Holy Spirit, Peter preached the full weight of the gospel. He refuses to cower. He refuses to compromise. He he refuses to water down the message that he's been preaching in order to appease these powerful men. No, he preaches boldly. And as he preaches boldly, we see that he also, secondly, persists in that boldness. He persists in that boldness. So, So Peter's preaching leads to this further opportunity for even more boldness as his words begin to confound the council. So as we think about persisting in boldness, we we see in verse 13 through 17 that boldness confounds outsiders. It confounds outsiders. Peter preached with such conviction, such courage, such boldness that the council kind of just sat there with their jaws dropping to the floor. They can't believe what they just saw happen. What they just heard happen. Luke says that they were astonished at Peter and John. After all, these were were two uneducated, ordinary men, right? If they're graduates from Harvard, Peter Peter and John, they're graduates from Wilson Community College, right? I mean, these these are nobodies, right? And yet they speak with such eloquence, such courage, such conviction before them, not intimidated in the slightest, You see, they recognize both Peter and John that these are two of the guys that have been with Jesus, right? We remember seeing them with Jesus a few months ago. And what a remarkable transformation has happened in Peter's life. That never ceases to amaze me as we study the book of Acts. That that Peter's last time that he was around this council, last time he was nearby the Sanhedrin, next time, last time he was present at a council's meeting was Jesus's trial, And you remember, Peter was a coward that day, right? He denied the Lord three times, insisting, I don't know that guy. I don't know that man. And now, and then when the council arrested Jesus, what did all the disciples do? They just scattered. They scattered. The shepherd was struck. Everybody just scattered away. And now look at what has happened. Peter stands before the exact same council that ordered the death of Jesus And he boldly preaches about the resurrected Christ. What's the difference? What has happened in a couple months that explains this difference in Peter? Two things, the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ is risen and the Holy Spirit has come and filled Peter with such boldness. So as they look upon Peter, as they look upon John, as they look upon this healed man standing beside them, they had nothing to say to refute what had taken place. Clearly, something had happened. After all, this man was 40 years old. He had been crippled his whole life. You don't just start walking 40 years after you've been crippled your whole life. What had happened? Clearly, a miracle had happened. So they sent Peter, John, and, and and the beggar. They sent them out. The council conferred with one another, and the council felt themselves between a rock and a hard place. Their attempts at intimidation did not work. So what are they going to do? After all, they couldn't deny that a miracle had taken place. It wasn't like it happened in some alley somewhere. Everybody saw it. Everybody saw this man. It was during that busy hour of prayer in the temple courts. Everyone in Jerusalem had begun to hear about this healed man, healed in the name of Jesus, by this guy named Peter and John. And so this this 40-year-old man, crippled all his life, who had been daily sitting by his beautiful gate, clearly is now walking. So what can explain this miracle? They couldn't accuse Peter and John of some sort of hoax. I mean, the evidence of the healed man is clearly before them. But yet at the same time, they didn't want any more of this talk about Jesus or about the resurrection to keep going. They didn't want it to gain any more traction. Already 5,000 men are getting sucked up into this Jesus thing. And so they want to stop it without it going any further. And they don't want Jerusalem to be politically unstable by this sort of Jesus movement taking place with these Christians. So you can see their trouble, right? If they kill Peter and John, the people will riot. That's the last thing the Sadducees wanted. They wanted to keep the peace so they could enjoy Roman rule and all the prosperity that it brought them. But if they don't kill Peter and John, then the message about Jesus might actually get further traction 
and lead to more instability. So what do you do? So the council decided that all we can do then is just reprimand the apostles, try to enforce a gag order on them. And so they brought them back in, Peter and John, and they charged them, don't say anything more about Jesus. Don't speak any more about Jesus, about this name. Stop it. So bold conviction about Jesus tends to confound outsiders. They just don't get it. They don't understand that when you start sharing Christ, others will will get confused. And sometimes they just don't quite know what to do with you. (laughs) What What do we do with you? Oftentimes that confusion just masks a hard heart. I mean, just like the council, the plain evidence of the power of Christ is before them. That, blind, that, that crippled man now walks. It was clear. They could see it. The wondrous sign of the healing testifies to the truthfulness of Peter's message, that Jesus is the resurrected Christ. But yet, instead of the council receiving this message as true, they deny the plain evidence that's before them and demand silence from Peter and John. I just, we don't want to hear it anymore. Can't explain it. We're not going to tell you that. We, we, can't, we don't understand it, but just please stop talking about Jesus. You see, you will find at times that when you share Christ boldly with others, sometimes they'll just want you to stop talking. Just stop it. They don't want to hear from you anymore because they simply don't know what to do with you and they can't explain away your gospel. You see, your boldness and your message confounds them. And even though they refute you, They can't refute you. They refuse to listen to you. But we also see that boldness spurns silence. Boldness spurns silence. The Holy Spirit-given boldness that we have as believers spurns any demands that others may make for our silence. Because as the council rebukes and demands silence from, from Peter and John, the apostles' response here is amazing. See how they persist in boldness. They don't just cower and say, well, okay, we'll stop talking about Jesus. We're not going to do it. We'll listen to you. We don't want to cause any trouble. And that's not what they do. Nor do they just tell a little white lie to get out of trouble, right? Saying, all right, well, we'll be silent. Not, but we'll say, yeah, we'll be silent. And we're going to go tell more people about Jesus. That's not what they do either. They're not deceptive in the slightest. Rather, right there, Before the council, council says, be silent. Don't talk anymore about Jesus or we'll hurt you, we'll threaten you, we'll kill you. And they say, well, pretty much, well, Sanhedrin, with all due respect, we're not going to be silent. We're not going to be silent. If you let us go, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go keep teaching about Jesus. After all, is it right in the sight of God to listen to you over God himself? You, O council, do not exceed the authority of God. Therefore, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. We refuse to be silent. We won't be silent. We will continue to preach and testify of the resurrected Christ. So if you let us go, that's what we're doing. Look at the boldness. They persist in this bold preaching of the gospel and they refuse to be silenced. They refuse to be intimidated by fear or by the command of their opponents. After all, the message of the gospel isn't your message. It's not Peter's message. It's not John's message. It's not my message. This is God's message. This is God's word. And that what we have seen, we must share. We did not invent this news. We did not make it up. We did not fabricate it. Rather, Christ is risen. This is God's gospel. And we are but heralds of what we have seen and what we have heard. At the end of the day, we must fear God over men. Even the mightiest of men. Even kings. Even rulers. Even councils. Even presidents and senators and Supreme Court justices, we will not cower when it comes to testifying about the message of salvation of the risen Christ. We cannot be silent, even though others might command it. When God has commanded us to speak, we must speak. As Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do 
but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who has, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, Christian boldness requires the crucifixion of fear of man. Upon our encounter with Christ, our consciences must be bound by the word of Christ. Christ is risen, and of him we must speak. No matter the threats that may come against us, no matter what others may sneer or demand, we preach in boldness, we persist in boldness, no matter what befalls us. And that leads thirdly, we must pray for boldness. We must pray for boldness. You see, Christian courage like this is not summoned by personal resolve, but by spirit-infused power. That's where this boldness comes from. Prayer is the means through which God fills us with spirit-empowered boldness. So we see, first, that we must pray knowing rejection will come. We ought not to be surprised about this as we pray. So once Peter and John were released, they went back to the church, to their friends, and they reported what had happened. And notice what the response of the church is. It's to fall on their knees and pray. And to pray. You see, as the Jewish opposition to the church, to the, to the Christian faith, as it begins to increase, the church knows that, that if we're going to be faithful and testifying about the resurrection, this is what Christ has called us to do. If we're going to do this, it's going to require more boldness, not less. And they know that, hey, if if we're going to be faithful to this task, we must pray and we must ask the Lord for this boldness. See, crisis tends to lead us to pray. But as the church began to pray after the news of Peter and John and what the Sanhedrin told them not to talk about Jesus anymore, they pray to the sovereign Lord, knowing that rejection is something they ought to be expecting. The church believed that the Lord is sovereign. And just look how they address him. Verse 24, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, God is in control. The early church knew this. God is in control, and they address God as the the sovereign Lord, the maker of the cosmos, and this sovereign God who through the mouth of David, who by the Holy Spirit has written the Psalms. This is a side note, but just look again at how Scripture continues to authenticate about itself. God speaks through the human author's mouth by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here again, we see an affirmation of the dual authorship of Scripture. It's written by men, inspired by the Spirit, but ultimately, as the early church affirms, as we affirm here at Redemption Church, ultimately the words of the Bible are God's Word. It's God's Word. And so as the early church prays, they pray in reference to Psalm chapter 2. And as the scripture predicted, the chosen king would have opposition, raging and plotting against the Lord's anointed. And not only as the church prays, not only has this been fulfilled in Jesus' arrest and execution, but it continues to be fulfilled as opposition is growing against the church of Christ. So as the church prays, they don't see the coming persecution as an act that thwarts the will of God. But they see it, in fact, as an act that fulfills the word of God. Look at what they pray in verse verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, though it might seem like suffering is in the church's future, they don't take that as a sign of God's unfaithfulness. But they see it as God's faithfulness. The scriptures give us this recurring reminder. Don't be surprised at the trials. The trials are a part of God's plan that he's laid before the foundations of the earth to see the gospel go forth. And so the word of God tells us, don't be surprised by trials. Don't be surprised when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. You see, following Jesus doesn't mean that your life will get easier. Oftentimes your life actually gets harder. But yet all of this, the early church believed, all of this is in fulfillment to God's word. God's not surprised by this. He's sovereign. His hand is doing whatever he's predestined to take place. 
So as we pray to the Lord for help, we ought not to be dismayed or confused when the world opposes God's people. Shouldn't surprise us. And instead of going to the Lord and complaining about our sufferings or pleading for their removal, look at what the church prays instead, that God might make them bold. And so we see also that they pray asking for boldness to speak. In verse 29 and 30, look at what they pray in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Notice, they pray for boldness, not relief. Boldness, not relief. How our prayers are so often different, aren't they? That we pray for the removal of suffering. God, take it away. God, make our life easier. Lord, make the gospel more palatable to our world. Lord, keep us safe in our homes and in our communities. But yet this was not the prayer of the early church. Instead, the church prayed for supernatural strength needed to preach Christ in the face of opposition. You see, while most of our prayers typically just pray asking God to reinforce our own little kingdoms that we've sequestered for ourselves, we ought to pray that God would fill us with holy courage to preach Christ no matter what the cost. You see, perhaps the reason our prayer life seems so powerless is that we have so domesticated our prayers. When was the last time you threw out your prayer list filled with your current health problems and financial problems and family problems and instead pray, Lord, whatever may come, Help me to speak your word with boldness. When was the last time you prayed that? Church, may we make this a priority in our prayers, that, that in our evangelistic negligence, that in our repeated disobedience to open our mouths when God would have us speak, may we pray that the Lord would make our cowardly hearts bold by his Spirit. I mean, how often do you find yourself silent by fear, tongue-tied by timidity, enslaved to your precious reputation that you've developed for yourself. You see, may the Lord fill our hearts with courage as we engage those around us with the gospel. Yes, we are cowards. I put myself there as well. We are cowards in so many ways. But the power of boldness comes not from you, not from me, but it comes from the Spirit of God who dwells within us. So may we pray that the Spirit of God would, would fill us to preach Christ with boldness. And that leads to pray trusting for the Spirit's power. Pray trusting for the Spirit's power. We pray trusting that the Lord will answer our prayers for boldness. That's the sort of prayer the Lord loves to answer. Prayers for boldness. And so fill us with the Spirit. So after the church prayed for boldness, they place, the place that they were gathering in shook. And the Spirit filled them with power and boldness. Again, when Acts talks about the filling of the Spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't have the Spirit. Now they do. But rather the, the intensity of the Spirit's power in their life come upon them in fresh ways. You see, we live in a day and an age where the gospel message has become increasingly controversial. Preaching Christ crucified and resurrected will often earn you laughs, but not just laughs, but sometimes visible expressions of anger. Though threats loom on the horizon, we, we can't consider any of what we experience in this country as persecution. I really don't think we can. I don't think we have any right to compared to what Christians throughout the ages and Christians in other places of the world when they go through actual persecution. But our lives aren't at risk. No one's going to execute you for sharing the gospel with somebody. Only thing at risk is possibly our reputations. And despite our relative safety in this country, despite the freedom we enjoy to be able to preach Christ without fear, we still remain silent. You see, faithfully following Christ in America in these next few decades, I believe will require increasing boldness increasing boldness. Preaching boldly doesn't mean being a jerk. 
reaching a culture today that is increasingly agnostic and relativistic, similar to the first century context. I think it's going to require both boldness and grace in our speech. Like we saw from Peter's example, there'll be those who reject, but yet there'll also be those who respond in repentance. And again, this comes supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. So, So Redemption Church, I believe strongly that we have a mission field that's becoming increasingly ripe right here in Wilson County. That there are many, yes, and there are. There are those who are opposed to the gospel, who refuse to hear it, who don't want to listen, who just want you to be quiet and keep your mouth shut. But there are many others who are eager to hear about the resurrected Christ. And yes, we will encounter obstacles. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But the biggest obstacle for us today as a church, it isn't governmental powers. It's not the Supreme Court. Our biggest obstacle is our own cowardice. That's our obstacle. So may we pray for boldness, boldness to preach Christ to our friends, boldness to preach Christ to our neighbors and to our coworkers. And may we do so with grace and conviction, with patience and directness, with conviction and love. But yet we can't do that by ourselves. We must devote ourselves to pray, to pray together for spirit-filled boldness. So let's do that together now. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we confess that in so many ways we cower in fear of others when it comes to sharing the gospel. Lord, so often our life is not defined by boldness, but Father, we pray We ask, Lord, that you would send your spirit upon us, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might preach Christ with greater faithfulness, with greater boldness. Lord, that we would think little of our own reputations and and the opinions of others, but Lord, that we would herald the message that you have entrusted to us, that we might testify of the living, resurrected Christ. So Father, I pray, Lord, that where we are cowardly, where we are silent, Lord, that we would all commit to pray, not for ease of circumstance, but for boldness and opposition as we herald Christ to our city and to our world. Father, I pray, Lord, that Redemption Church would be characterized by such evangelistic boldness. Lord, that we would not hesitate to preach Christ. And Lord, that we would preach him boldly and winsomely and lovingly and graciously and filled with conviction. And Lord, we pray that as we do, Lord, we know that there will be those who reject it. Lord, of that we are not surprised, but Lord, we know there will also be those who hear the gospel, who repent, and who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those in this room now who who might not know you. God, I pray that they would not respond in rejection to this gospel this morning but Lord, that by your spirit, they would respond in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, may you do this work in us as we preach, as we declare, as we share your gospel. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.